This is the Peter Creek Presbyterian Church Podcast. Here at Peter Creek, we honor God by making more disciples for Jesus Christ. From wherever you are listening, we hope that you are encouraged with this week's message from Pastor Kelly Baldridge. human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I'm not going to open with any illustration. Let's get right to it. First, we have this human example, this example from human experience. Uh, The reason we need no illustration is because Paul gives us one. In verse 15, he speaks of covenant. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. There are some who see this covenant as the idea of a last will and testament. And if you know anything about a last will and testament, it is final. The conditions cannot change on this last will and testament. And in particular, this is talking about when someone has died. Someone dies and their will does not change post-death. It doesn't change, it's final. Uh, But also, Paul is really getting at this idea of a covenant itself. Uh, This last will and testament is okay, but I do believe that Paul here is speaking of covenant because he is reminding these Jewish false teachers, and then he's also reminding the Gentiles themselves, helping them to understand about covenant, and in particular, the covenant of God. Covenant of God. You can think of a contract in reference to this idea of a covenant. If you and I try to to go and buy something, and we have someone that comes and they sell us Uh, something, they want to sell us something, and they say, well, it's going to be this amount. And we sign a contract. And then perhaps the next day we go in to pick up our product, whether it be a car or or a house or whatever it may be. And they say, well, you know what? I've rethought this. I'm going to add $300 to this amount or $5,000, whatever it may be. What will we say? No way. We have a contract. It is a binding document. In other words, it cannot be changed. It cannot be ratified. It cannot be altered. We agreed upon this, and it does not change. And so what is Paul doing here? He is giving this understanding that God has made a covenant with his people. In particular, he is speaking of the covenant that he makes with Abraham. And in this covenant, he makes a promise So you have covenant, and then you also have promise. 
the covenant in Genesis 15 was ratified by blood. In fact, I want to read this passage to you because I think it's important for you to see. In verse 8, Abraham is already told what God's going to do. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring you this land that you will possess. And so then Abraham's like, okay, how will I know? What's the contract going to be? What is the covenant? And so the Lord God speaks uh, after Abraham asks, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And then the Lord tells him what to do. Because in this covenant is a bond made with blood. Uh, he says, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought them him all these, cut them in half. Yes, it's kind of, it's a, it's a bloody picture because this is that kind of a covenant. And laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down to the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So in this, you have God saying, here are the stipulations of the covenant. Nowhere in this passage has God said to Abraham, Abraham, you must do this and you must do that. In fact, this covenant is a covenant that God makes with Abraham, but God is the only one who's gonna be doing anything in the covenant. And so he says, as for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And so here's what happens. The sun had gone down and it was dark. And behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. So the way this covenant was ratified in the ancient time is that those pieces of the animals that were put on either side, the one ratifying the covenant would walk through. But notice, Abram is still asleep and the Lord's speaking to him in an unusual way, but Abram doesn't walk through. Who walks through? God walks through. This picture that is presented here, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces, that is the way the Lord walked through making this covenant with Abram. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river. And then he continues on and on to explain the land that the Lord had given. And so in verse 16 of Galatians 3, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, Referring to many, the last verse we just read is in the singular. You know, that's important because he speaks of covenant. He speaks of promise. What is the promise? Is that Abraham would have a land and he would have a seed. Now, why is that important? Well, if you know, you remember Abraham and his wife, were, his wife was barren. They didn't have any children. Now, how could they have a seed? God would be faithful to his promise. And was he? He was, indeed he was. But then you have here in verse 16, it explains to us 
the fulfillment of who this offspring is. In this passage, the Holy Spirit leads Paul to teach us that it was Christ himself. The offspring that God was speaking to Abraham about is Christ. And therefore, the promise that is given is given to Christ. And then that means that the promise that is given to Christ is the promise that's given to those who are united to Christ, everyone who believes upon him. Okay, so what is the promise? The promise is that we would be made right with God through justification by faith. Abraham was never told to do anything to earn his salvation. All Abraham had to do was believe. Now, he was asked to believe some great things. Abram, you and your wife, I know you, you don't have children yet, but you're going to have offspring that outnumber the stars. Believe. Abram, here's your son. I need you to sacrifice him. Abraham believed. He laid the wood to his son. But before he killed his son, the Lord provided an animal to be sacrificed. But that would only point us forward to the true seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. And the father, the father would not deliver his son. He would not save his son, but he would sacrifice him the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the covenant is made by God. It cannot be broken. The promise is given to us in Christ. And so for you and I, what we have is Christ held out before us to believe in him, to trust in him, to find our life in him. So because this promise is made to Christ, how could we ever think God would break it? That's the point that he's making this promise that Abraham would be saved by faith is made to Abraham and it's made through Christ. How could you ever think that God would come back on his promise and say that now it's somehow by works that you can be saved? It's somehow by your effort that you can be saved. How could you ever believe anything different if it is made through the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, if you don't get it from this human experience of this, this binding covenant that cannot be broken, you might get it through history, understand it through this. Because in verse 17, he, he says, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So in verse 17, Paul is telling us the priority of the promise. The promise is the priority over the law. 430 years before the law is ever given, God makes a covenant with Abraham and promises these things to him, that there will be a land, that he'll have an offspring, and that offspring will come and provide the land, and not just the land, but the world to his people. He didn't first ask his people to be good in order to win his favor. God first gave his favor and then encouraged them to be good. So in other words, what we see in the covenant of Abraham, God is showing us the pattern of how he saves us. He does not save you 
by saying to you, well, you need to do this and you need to do that and you need to do this and you need to do that and you don't need to do this and you don't need to do that or you shouldn't do this or you shouldn't do that and then I'll save you. No, 430 years before that gap, that gap in history, it's there for a purpose to point to us the fact that God gives us his favor before he gives us his law. He gives us his favor so that we would obey his law, not so that we would earn salvation, but we work and we do out of our salvation. So this is the, this is the pattern he gives us. You and I will not be saved by being good little boys and good little girls. You and I will never stand before God as declared righteous by our own righteousness It is a righteousness that has been given to us by Jesus Christ, by faith in him alone. And so the pattern is, you can't earn God's favor. You can't earn something that you already have. You already have it. If you are in Christ, if you've trusted in him, you know that you already have God's favor because you would not be able to trust in God if his favor was not resting upon you. That's what grace is, isn't it? It's unmerited favor, unmerited favor. We don't earn it by our race. We don't earn it by uh, what we do in life. We don't earn it by our education level. It is unearned. It is given to us as a gift. It is what God has done. It is what he has promised. And so Paul says there is a priority of the promise over the law. And so God will not set aside the covenant and do away with his promise just because the law is given. Now, those Judaizers, that's that group that were causing trouble within the church. They needed to hear that. They needed to understand, well, you're trying to add all of these things, but God's not gonna listen to you. God's not gonna take what you're saying and say, okay, well, I'll set aside. I must have been wrong in my covenant. No, this is what I've set out to do. And this is what I'm doing. And this is how it's done. It's actually not done by you. See, faith is not a work itself. Faith is not a work. It's faith in Christ. So not only does he show us the priority of the promise, he also shows us that it is promise and not performance. In verse 17, We read about the priority in verse 18. You read about this. For if the inheritance, if that is the promise, if if what you gain from the promise, if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. In other words, Paul is saying the promise and the law are two different things. Faith and work are two different things. They're not the same. They can't go together because if you're saying that faith and works somehow earns your salvation, then you have preached a gospel of legalism. You have preached something contrary to the gospel itself. The message of faith and works is really only works. Let's say this. Uh, Let let me pick on the kids and make sure they're, they're awake. If I were to come to Logan and I were to give him a gift, perhaps today in times, a PlayStation 5, that would be a pretty good gift. 
all right? And, and then I were to tell Logan, Logan, you can have this PlayStation 5. It is my gift to you, but you have to promise me that you will eat all of your vegetables from here on out, and you'll cut out sweets. Let me ask you, did I give Logan a gift? That's not a gift, is it? That is based on his performance. So God doesn't come to us and give us Christ, give us his son, give us the gospel, give us salvation, give us justification being made right with him by saying, here it is, here's a gift for you. Now you need to do these things so that you may obtain it. No, he gives us the gift. It is a free gift without any stipulations, without any conditions. It is a free gift, the gift of the gospel, the gift of Jesus Christ. And in fact, if we think or assume that we can add to the gift by our own works, our own efforts, then we have forfeited the gift and it no longer is a gift. And then it is earned, but we understand in the Bible, the Bible teaches us that no one is righteous and no, not one, that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. So if you try to earn it, you never will. You can never get there. You can't do it. There's not enough vegetables in the world for you to eat. Notice as well in verse 18, God gave it to Abraham by a promise. God gave it to Abraham. It is a compound verb here. He gave it as a free gift, not to be earned. He gave it in perpetuity. He gave it and it continues on. It holds forever. The gift that was given to Abraham was also given to his offspring who is Christ. And then therefore, all of those who are united to Christ by faith also receive the gift. So, I mean, this is what salvation is. For those of you who are here that, that you think that you can, you can do enough good things to earn your way into heaven, please hear me out. That, that, that's too hard. That, that, that doesn't work. But rather, you have received a gift that the Father has given his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die in your place on the cross, to receive your sin upon himself so that he could give to you his righteousness so that you could trust in him and be saved. Now, what does this teach us? God's covenant, his promise doesn't change. If he has promised that salvation would come by faith, that is true from then throughout eternity. But the reason it is true is because of the nature of God himself. God doesn't change. So as we consider this passage, it also points to us this fact that God himself doesn't change. He doesn't change. What assurance that ought to give us he promises to save you from your sins in Christ and he will do it. He promises to never leave you nor forsake you and he will remain with you. He promises that all things are working together for your good. He will do it. He will make sure that the worst of times, the painful times, the difficult times, the, the evil times, all of those things are working together for your good. If he promises it, 
It will happen because God doesn't change. This past year has been a dark year. And in the darkness, in the midst of struggle, in the midst of pain, in the midst of grief, when we are worried about those we love that are not doing what is right, if we know and trust in God, we understand that he does not change and we can trust him. So over and over again, we have learned that faith is not about having enough faith. It's not about the amount of faith that you and I have. It is about the one that we trust in. It's about the object of our faith. And the object of our faith is a God who is constant, who is consistent, who doesn't change. A God who remains the same, who is unmoved by the things of this world. Meaning, it's not that we're not saying that he doesn't care. Oh, he cares, absolutely. But he is unmoved. He is, he is not fettered. It doesn't concern him. It doesn't hurt him. It doesn't make him sad because he knows what his purposes and his plans are and his plans remain the same. So in the darkness, who are you trusting to turn on the lights? In the midst of struggle, in the midst of pain, who are you, who are you trusting to relieve you of that pain? In the midst of your suffering, who are you trusting that understands and has suffered himself, but yet remains the same. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ himself is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That Jesus Christ himself, he says that he's the eternal one. He is alive forevermore. That he is the alpha and the omega. That even Jesus, when he is being beaten, for you, and when he is suffering for you, when the nails are piercing his hands and his feet for you, and when the spear pierces his side for you, he does not love you any less as he considers your sin that was placed upon him. No. Oh, his affection grows and grows because he does not. He loves you. God has not changed. And so in this life of uncertainty, we are to trust in the certain God. In this life that changes from day to day, we are to trust in the unchanging God. In the darkness that we are facing, we are to trust in the one who is light. Oh, friends, Paul is telling us by the Spirit to trust in God, to have faith in Jesus Christ. Do you trust him? Have you put your faith upon the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you considered him? He is good. No matter what bad comes, he is good. No matter those around you that fail you, he is faithful and true. Trust him. Trust him. Let's pray. Father, we do rejoice in you, our unchanging God, that you are not a father 
who bases your love for us upon whether we are good children or not. In fact, Father, you loved us despite our sinfulness. And not only did you love us despite our sinfulness, you loved us so that you would, in Christ, make us good. You save us to the uttermost. We are brought into this relationship with you through faith, and we continue in it, being conformed into the image of your Son by faith. And so we rejoice, O God, that you saved us, and you are saving us, and we will be saved by faith. So help us, O God, in our unbelief. Help us to again trust you, to trust your work, not ours, to trust in Christ's obedience, and not in our own. Trust in his death so that we may live. For it's in Jesus' name we pray and ask Thank you for listening to this week's message. If God has used this message to influence you or you would like more information about our church, connect with us on the Peter Creek Presbyterian Church Facebook page. Remember to subscribe to hear more messages from Pastor Kelly Baldridge.